0: to the True Neighbor Podcast. My name is Tom Breyer. One of the best parts of running for office is that you get a chance to meet brilliant people. My guest today is one of those people, Edward Luce, someone who I regard as one of the preeminent political and historical thinkers in the world today and one of my intellectual role models. Ed is the US national editor and columnist at the Financial Times. Before that, he was the FT's Washington Bureau Chief. He has also served as South Asia Bureau Chief, Capital Markets Editor, and Philippines Correspondent. Ed was previously the speechwriter for U.S. Treasury Secretary Larry Summers in the Clinton administration. He is the author of three highly acclaimed books, the most recent of which is the topic of our conversation today, The Retreat of Western Liberalism. He is also the author of Time to Start Thinking, America in the Age of Descent, and In Spite of the Gods, The Strange Rise of Modern India. He appears regularly on CNN, NPR, MSNBC's Morning Joe, and the BBC. In this episode, we discuss a number of pressing topics, beginning with why our current state of affairs is the symptom of America's ill-conceived response to globalization. We also discuss why democracy is at risk when citizens don't have faith in the future, what the COVID-19 pandemic portends for our globalist economy, the rise of authoritarianism, Donald Trump's use of technology in a way that is untethered from the truth, the decline of the Democratic Party, and Ed's thoughts on the best public servants in American history. I could have spoken with Ed for hours. He is a brilliant man, and his piercing analysis of contemporary society will leave you feeling enlightened. Without further ado, I bring you our next true neighbor, Edward Luce. Shh. All right. I'm here with Edward Luce. Ed, thanks for coming on the podcast. Delight to be here, Tom. You know, I must say before we start that your book, The Retreat of Western Liberalism, was uh, in large part the inspiration for me writing my book, which motivated me to run for office. So if I lose, I have <laughs> to trace I, it I, back to you. I will take the blame.
1: Uh, le- I'm, I'm rooting for you even more uh, now that you told me that.
0: <laughs> well, thank you. The moral support uh, goes a long way. Um, but uh, before we dive into it, uh, you've been commenting now on foreign and domestic affairs for some time. Uh, how would you describe your profession and, and the work that you do?
1: Well, I I, I used to be a reporter um, uh, for the Financial Times. I was um, variously in charge of our capital markets coverage in the late 90s um, at the time of great global financial turmoil. I, I then became our India Bureau Chief covering South Asia the first five six years of, of this century um i then became washington bureau chief for the financial times and since 2011 i've been a columnist and, and u.s national editor for the ft here in the united states um you know we're a global paper and we're, our circulation is distributed fairly evenly between the united states between north america europe and asia and um Therefore, you know, we have we have a fairly unique global platform, um, which is a, it's a great privilege. I, I wake up every day and um, um, have to pinch myself that, that they're actually paying me to do this because it's a fascinating, very privileged kind of job to be doing, particularly at very urgent times like this.
0: Absolutely. And I know I'm grateful for the fact that you're able to think out loud in real time, uh, whether it's in print or, or on television, I've been um, a card-carrying member of the Ed Lewis fan club for some time now. Um, but I want I want to talk about your book because I think, especially on a on a revisit now that I'm looking back at it after some time away from it, and now that we've been in the uh, Trump presidency now for several years, it's even to me more uh, perceptive than when I first read it. Um, but I want to I want to ask you first though. There's this idea in your book that kind of uh, appears at, at various points throughout, and it's the idea of faith in the future. Uh, you, you write that when people lose faith in the future, they are less likely to invest in the present. Why is that faith in the future, that psychological belief in tomorrow, so important? I think it's, um, you know, if you think about it from an individual
1: point of view rather than from the point of view of a whole society. Um, if you yourself don't feel you've got prospects in life or things are going wrong personally with relationships, whatever it might be, it's a very energy draining thing. The spark that drives you forward, um, uh, starts to dull and, and your life can become, you know, um, inward looking, self-pitying, um, you can be prone to anger, all the kinds of psychological things that hit people when their hope starts to die, um, whether they're responsible for their situation or not. And I think um, writ large, this has been happening to sort of vast tracts, vast sectors of sections of our societies in the West, particularly in the United States and Britain, um, for really the last generation. And I think one of the sort of collapses of faith has been in the system of meritocracy, um, that really is our governing philosophy as societies, that we don't really think it is meritocratic anymore. Um, and a lot of people feel the game is rigged. And I think that, is, that has really undermined faith in the future and the future of our children. And it's also undermined trust in the public institutions um, that, uh, that govern us.
0: And I read, I heard a, a line once that happiness is expectations minus reality. And there's been a severe misalignment for the past several decades, it seems, between uh, expectations and the reality that especially working class families find themselves in, in the United States. And you trace that back toward the initial, uh, deep dive toward globalization as the kind of, uh, inflection point and the origin of why there has been a uh, a lead, especially on an economic level, to deep disparity and deep despair in the United States? Why why is the uh, why is globalization the starting point for you? I think that the
1: period of globalization or this phase of globalization that we've been in since the 1970s has uncoincidentally, you know, come with the stagnation of middle incomes, median household income today is only 20% higher in real terms than it was in 1978 um and that understates the stagnation because in 1978 most households were single earners and today they tend to have both uh, both working and sometimes particularly the woman in multiple part-time jobs without proper health insurance or indeed pension benefits. So, you know, that number of 20% will real, real increase in incomes understates, I think, um, the squeeze that um, middle class people are feeling. So, I, I definitely it's as associated with globalization. I would blame our response to globalization rather than globalization itself. What we ought to have done is invested heavily in people, in their education, in upgrading the kinds of safety nets, um, that would be more appropriate for the workplace today where people change jobs frequently and in providing, you know, what I call a Marshall Plan for the middle class. And, and we've yet to do that. And I think that's an extraordinary failing of our political system. That's why I'm slightly hesitant to blame globalization because I think globalization is just an inevitable feature of, of the world we live in. And it's enabled by technology
0: to kind of plant the flag here on the question of globalization. It's timely because we're living now through a pandemic where globalization in many ways has increased our susceptibility to a massive and uh, far reaching virus And the irony. And there was an article in the, uh, in foreign affairs that touched on this more deeply, but in, um, we're seeing this now actually where 69 countries have banned or restricted the uh, exporting of medical devices and machines and PPE. And there's the, the fear potentially that this will cause an eco- equal and opposite reaction, that globalization will actually be turned inward. And because of the health consequences of having a supply chain that extends across the globe, the uh, there will be an incentive to have more localized um, economies, and in essence, more of a nationalist economy. Have you thought at all about what the pandemic might mean for the system as a whole? It's, um, it's an intriguing and extremely
1: important question. I mean, if you um, make an analogy between the pandemic and the Great Depression, or the stock market crash of 29, um, you'd see the Smoot-Hawley Act passed by Congress, which was really this, you know, the most protectionist act in modern American history, partly in retaliation to what other countries were doing. That was really when you hit the point of no return and countries started pulling up their draw drawbridges, if you like, um, and uh, you then got a sort of beggar thy neighbor, tit for tat, uh, Contraction of the, of the world economy and a retreat into nationalism, both economically and of course politically. Um, if you see the pandemic as really the stock market crash, this sort of vast event, vast shock, um, we're now at the pre Smoot Hawley Act era. We don't inevitably have to end up with something like that. But my deep concern is that the united states is led by an administration that thought like this before the pandemic that that believes in economic nationalism and you know has a very good example here of america's vulnerability let's not downplay that in that something like 90% of america's active ingredients for its pharmaceuticals its antibiotics etc is sourced from china and that is a you know an acute vulnerability um so i do worry that that's the way that um politics is drifting ideally you would have an american president at this time convening using his unique convening power um to gather the g20 to, uh, including china including india as well as americas allies and issuing a strong sort of global statement of cooperation, collaboration in search of a vaccine, restraint in terms of export controls uh, for medical supply lines, PPE supply lines and so forth. And a statement sort of even beyond that morally that, that we're all in this together. We are only as strong as our weakest link, that we will find a vaccine and we will make it available to Africa, to South Asia, and so forth. That's the kind of thing, you know, I think another US president would be doing. And I think Obama, to be fair, would be doing that. Um, uh, Trump is would die a thousand deaths before playing that kind of role. So I'm way more worried about the future of a global cooperation and indeed global stability because of this pandemic than I would like to have been.
0: And you actually, you were very prescient in your book when you wrote about Viktor Orban. I think the quote was that you said a true populist loses patience with the rules of the democratic game. And we're seeing in Hungary right now, I mean, uh, Viktor Orban just signed the equivalent of an enabling act that gave him plenary power over parliament. Um, And, you know, even Trump, this is something that's been pushed to the periphery a bit, but he just uh took away the asylum system for immigrants which is the most aggressive uh action that the executive has taken in that space um perhaps in american history and so trump's tendencies are being magnified at, at a time like this and so democracy and not only just globalization but it seems to me that even compared to when you wrote the book a few years ago that democracy is at a greater risk today than it would have been uh during your publication was it is that fair to say it is fair to say. I mean, at the time that I wrote the book, reported
1: out, which was three years ago, pretty much exactly, um, some people accused me of being too alarmist. I think it coincided the initial publication of the book with Macron's victory over Marine Le Pen in France. And so people were saying, oh, look, that crisis over liberal democracy was has been overstated. Um, uh, a neo fascist has been, you know, soundly defeated in France. Um, but, uh, looking back on it now, I think I would agree with you that, um, some, some of the trend lines I was sort of blowing the whistle on in that book are, are arguably understated. Um, Hungary, Viktor Orban, two weeks ago, suspending democracy, essentially what remained of Hungarian democracy, um, uh, ruling by decree indefinitely declaring um, that um, disinformation or fake news um, was an imprisonable offence by up to three years in courts that are clearly not independent um, and and that are very much uh, um, um, subordinate to uh, um, Orbán's party, ruling party, um, has produced no statement of condemnation from the United States, not even a light rap on the knuckles from the European Union. The European Union requires unanimity to penalize any country that breaks its core principles, which include, you know, rule of law, free and fair elections, freedom of the press, etc. And it's never going to get unanimity because countries such as Poland can be relied upon to veto those actions. So Mm. there is no barrier to the uh, urbanization of other parts of Europe, and there is no countervailing pressure um, or moral force from the United States on this question. I I would argue that Trump probably admires Orban for what he's done and applauds it, uh, as as indeed does Vladimir Putin. Times of war, and we are analogizing this pandemic to a wartime situation, are when Autocrats and would-be autocrats use the cloak of wartime to arrogate even more power to themselves, and we're seeing that not just in Hungary but uh, across the world. Uh, what's different about today is the United States is either uninterested or implicitly encouraging of, of such trends,
0: and that's that's very new and it's very troubling. It's deeply troubling, and. I think you're right that I would imagine Trump's initial impulse is envy uh, for how he sees Putin and Orban governing right now. And, and the discussion you have in the book about Trump's similarities to Putin and his affection for his governing style is relevant, particularly right now, because they both seem to understand uh, that humanity has an endless appetite for distraction. And so, you know, you write that if people are entertained, they will also be docile. And you also, and I use this line over and over. It's one of my favorite lines from your whole book. Um, in so many words, you said that Orwell was concerned Big Brother would always be watching us. Huxley was concerned that people would be too busy watching Big Brother to care. Um, how has Trump's uh, political approach through technology and his ability to be constantly in this form of entertainment without being tethered to truth, what is that revealed about the American psyche? And how does it play out now during a pandemic? So the um, ability Trump has, which I think he honed, you know,
1: through years of managing the New York tabloids, and then of course, being a yeah. apprentice, celebrity apprentice host, of being able to sort of feel where the beating heart of the Coliseum is, is a skill that shouldn't be under underestimated. It's he he's he he knows he knows where the mobs um pulse can be found um and very few political leaders have that skill and he has it sort of i think to a kind of diabolical de- degree um uh, the difference between today and say you know the late 1940s before we had this kind of technology um but when america you know faced um um, a, a cold war, um, a potential nuclear war, the collapse of its alliances in Europe, and was able to create the Marshall Plan, this extraordinary act of enlightened, self-interested enlightenment. Um, a very far-sighted policy. Um, is not that Americans are more ignorant than they were in the 1940s. Um, I, I, I suspect Americans are more knowledgeable today than they were in the the 1940s. It's that they trusted their leaders more. Um, they were able to, felt confident enough to outsource decision-making on questions like that, which, you know, it's not an obviously popular thing to do, to give hundreds of billions of dollars in today's money to foreign countries. Um, it, it, what's changed is partly the technology, but it's partly the the cratering of trust in 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 our leadership and trump's able to play that as i say to a diabolical degree i I use that word diabolical literally it's it's not for good ends um and the technology aspect of it is that that mistrust can be expressed far more directly and harnessed by trump's twitter account far more directly than you had available to, to to politics, and to voters um, in previous eras. So, you know, I, I don't I don't have a grand unified field theory of technology and politics. It's a very difficult question. And it's a it's still, a, you know, an early, an early stage of, of social media and politics. Um, but I do know that nobody can match Trump on this. And I don't think Biden can match Trump on this. He's going to have to win another way. You you don't you don't get into a mud fight with or with Trump.
0: No, I couldn't agree more. And it's an actually an interesting interesting segue to what I wanted to ask you about the Democratic Party, because you know in a in a time where we really could use a an inspiring alternative that people, to your point, do trust to get us out of this situation, um, that remains to be seen. And what I found fascinating in your book was that. The American turn toward globalization, or at least when it really started to pick up steam under Bill Clinton, also coincided with a major shift in the Democratic Party and how they viewed politics. Uh, They had this transformation from a specific ideology to more of a consumer oriented, whatever works uh, type of politics. And as you write in the book, um, Hillary Clinton and that model of political discourse lost the language of connection with people who were falling behind. And so what did that turn in the way the democratic party began to operate? What did that reflect about, uh, where we are today in terms of what the democratic party stands for? Uh, I think, you know, the, the period of, um, uh,
1: the Reagan era caused a great crisis of confidence, um, in the democratic party, um, It had sort of lost the plot during the Carter administration. Um, you could probably trace it back to the Democratic convention of 1968 in Chicago, where, you know, Hubert Humphrey very bitterly, after very bitterly fought street battles included, um, convention becomes a very inadequate nominee who goes on to lose to Nixon. And then you get the McGovern reforms to how the democratic party works and how the primary system works and i think you know what that did was it prioritized the people who lost the street battles um uh, in chicago in 1968 namely the berkeley students you know the um the um jack kerouac um generation um uh, it prioritized their their view of what the party should should look like at the expense of those who, uh, to put it crudely, won those bloody riots, which mm-hmm. is the Irish and Italian cops using a brutal methods. And so you really, you cut out the blue collar um, from the Democratic Party to make it a rainbow coalition. And I think that that rainbow coalition um, aligned with um, big capital, Essentially became over time the Democratic Party and it was, it was, I think, personified by Bill Clinton, um, taken further by Barack Obama, both wonderfully talented politicians able to appeal to vast coalitions and beyond them to, to the nation. Um, but which nevertheless, um, implicitly dropped the middle class and dropped the working class as a priority. And they gradually moved to the right. They initially with the Reagan Democrats, um, uh, from, um, from the Midwest, from Michigan and states like yours, uh, from Pennsylvania. Um, and then, you know, under Trump, um, we could even you know, pause in between here and talk about figures like Newt Gingrich and Sarah Palin. But mm. then under Trump, you know, it becomes a sort of an almost sort of complete transition. Um, over the same period of time, union membership has declined sharply and unions were such a strong glue for the Democratic Party, but they'd kind of been relegated. So I think you've, what you've got was a party that's essentially a Wall Street of Silicon Valley of the wealthy sort of globalized elites of America in alignment with minority groups, um, with a rainbow coalition, um, that increasingly didn't want to ask for the votes um and was even at times as with henry's deplorable comment slightly contemptuous of the votes of of the white working class and i think that's both a, a tactical mistake in terms of how you win elections but i also think it's um i think it's a substantive mistake to think that most of those people are sort of driven by misogyny and racism. Um, you know, of course, there is a lot of that. Um, but uh you know you had millions of people who voted for Trump, who had voted for Obama. It clearly wasn't, they clearly weren't so racist, they couldn't elect a black president. Um, I think what they felt with some reason was that they were partly being blamed for their plight, for their lost not mm-hmm. just of economic earnings potential, but also of status, feeling needed, feeling one, deeper than just an economic thing, um, a- about feeling useful, part of society. And that led to a collapse of faith in the Democratic Party and perhaps in, the, in democracy more generally in the United States that we were discussing earlier. Um, I hope that Trump, you know, is, is the sort of reductio ad absurdum of this trend, of this process and that we will see it broken in November because he's a bait and switch politician on a grand scale. He, he pretends, you know, he pretends he's aligned with the interests of his voters, but he is, um, Really undermining their interests with every major economic action he's taken since becoming president. So I hope that the combination of bizarre circumstances we have in 2020, having an election in the middle of an academic uh, epidemic with a president who's uninterested in the science of defeating it will, will break the bank of that kind
0: of politics. Uh, I, I say, I hope I'm not predicting it will, but I hope it will. Do you see anybody in the Democratic Party who you would point to and say, this is the type of rhetoric and philosophy and approach to campaigning and discourse that we should return to? Do you have kind of someone who's representing what the Democratic Party should be doing in response to Trump? Well, I have to say I was very
1: attracted to the ideas and the framework of Elizabeth Warren um, during the campaign. Um, I think she understood... um, in, in a, a way that was better than Bernie Sanders, that people want a capitalist system that works, where there is equality of opportunity um, and where, you know, the big, the big corporations are not rigging the game um, through the Washington lobbying machine. I think she understood that she had a more American um, demotic, if you like, which is a Teddy Rooseveltian idea of the little guy um, and making capitalism work for everybody. She didn't prove to be very good at politics. She's not very good, uh, unfortunately, at reading the music Mm. of politics. Um, And so sadly her campaign, you know, didn't succeed ultimately. Um, I think just in terms of the moment we're in, um, I'm not original in saying this at all, but Andrew Cuomo has got an authority, a clarity and a competence that You know, you only realize what what we're missing when we see it. Um, And the contrast with Trump is is quite extraordinary. Biden has the empathy that Trump um, is clearly missing that gene. Biden can establish empathy with people. He understands the situation they're in and they feel he understands it. And I hope he's going to get the opportunity to convey that. During the campaign, I don't think Biden has thought particularly deeply about the structural problems with the system. I don't agree with him that Trump is an aberration. I think Trump is a, um, you know, very much a symptom, a, a, a grotesque symptom, but he's not the cause of this crisis uh, of liberal democracy. Um, uh, I hope Biden can sort of raise his game in, in the coming months and, um, and perhaps borrow some clothes from Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, um, and in, in the way that he would put it, incorporate that into his campaign.
0: If you could pick any person in human history, you already mentioned a couple of just, just then as a model for public service, who would it be? In human history. In human history. Um,
1: well, you know, I, I would, since we're sitting here in um, the United States, and I'm specifically sitting here in Washington, DC, I would always start with George Washington. Um, and I think people don't appreciate the degree to which he set the tone and the temper of, of the character of the American Republic. Um, a man who everybody around him was begging to put on a uniform. And be the general in charge of this country after the, after the revolutionary war and who refused to do that because he understood just what a dangerous Bonapartist tone that would set. And who also then, having been president for two terms, refused to, to seek election for a third for the same reasons. He understood that power must be modest and an example, um, example how powerful example is and so i think washington he's always sort of mentioned as an in marbled you know um figure but he, he's never really brought to life and those very real very um deeply philosophical and highly principled decisions i think set the tone for the american republic to to become what it could become um so i would start with him in terms of public servants, I hate to sound like a politician. Uh, well, I don't hate to, uh, but I, I, you know, I'm not a politician is, is what I should I mean to say. But, uh, you know, when JFK talked about the small numberless acts of kindness, um, it, it's, it's so vivid now with the, with the essential workers on the front line, the people who are often invisible to us, um, who are, day in, day out, you know, working their guts out and risking a great deal and probably isolating um from their families at home, um, to fight a pandemic. Um, but also all kinds of other people who are who are picking up trash or who are policing the streets, um, or who are delivering things, or stocking stuff. It's stocking shelves. Um, it's it's the sort of Ordinary people going about their daily business without giving in to frustration or despair are just putting one foot in front of the other that keep society going. And uh, I, you know, I can't put a name to any of them. You know, this isn't like, you know, the tomb to the unknown soldier. Um, there are so many of them. And, um, I think what's, if there's a silver lining to this epidemic, it's that they are visible again, and they're usually invisible and we undervalue them. And uh, I hope that if if any good things can come from this situation, valuing them much more highly will will be one of them.
0: I think so too. And it goes back to your original point from the beginning about what happens when people feel insignificant or that they're disposable and isolated and lonely, whereas now they are ordinary citizens are the front lines, actually more so, the last lines of defense for this pandemic. And that's cause for celebration because it restores a deep sense of humanity to what I think is really lacking in this country of a really deep sense of despair. I have one final question for you. You mentioned the philosophical approach that George Washington had. I find it fascinating to go back to the Constitutional Convention and read about the debate that they had over that 55-day span between John Locke and Thomas Hobbes. Essentially, can you create a society that allows for a virtuous class, a virtuous citizenry that looks out for the common good? Is it possible to have a blank slate and create that type of world, or is the Hobbesian darker impulses of the human spirit, are they inevitable in a, in a crisis? And um, I find that debate just probably the most interesting and profound discussion in human history. As someone who studied philosophy, he uh, studied political science, the revolution, do you have any thoughts on that original discussion that framed the constitution from the beginning? My personal hero, and this is before the
1: musical came out um has always been alexander hamilton um although you know the musical has certainly helped things and um uh having my daughter sing sing excerpts from it in the car in the days when i used to drive her to school before home school online learning began a few weeks ago um reinforced it but the the you know i could have picked madison but i prefer hamilton um uh, not just because of his farsightedness in understanding that you couldn't have a Swiss-style confederation. Well, what is now a Swiss-style confederation? The, the nature of, the nature of the world, um, and of the society America was trying to create did necessitate, a, um, a, a more prominent federal government, um, than most of the people he was debating from Virginia were prepared to um, concede, and he won that argument through extraordinary skill as Treasury Secretary as, uh, to, to, to Washington. Um, so I think um, I think Hamilton's input into that debate was very important, just on a biographical level. Um, you know, he didn't own any slaves. He didn't come from landed plantocracy. Um, he came from a very american background um which is you know he was born in poverty you know the he scrambled his way up he was an entrepreneur basically in in sort of many regards managed to sort of win washington's confidence and then became an intellectual leader um uh, during the constitutional debates a very brilliant man um uh, i don't feel um reappraised well enough right now to give you a good sort of um pressy of of that debate but you have inspired me to go back and 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 um read more about it
0: well that's uh that's cause for another podcast down the line then Uh, it certainly is it certainly is and maybe a celebration of your uh, of your political success i certainly hope so but Ed, it's it's a real treat getting to speak with you. As I mentioned in the beginning, I'm a, I'm a big admirer of your, your work and your insight and just the general way you frame discussions in a very ethical and civil way. Um, it's a refreshing voice in our chaotic world today. So thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me. A real pleasure, Tom. Thank you very much.